0: Sara, president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run non-profit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the academy free resources on our website and all our podcasts are free. We also organise a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses, thank you, and to show our gratitude your support all patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations to unlock these please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash buddhist recovery network again patreon.com forward slash buddhist recovery network Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace. Okay. Okay, so um, actually, if I just ask you to introduce yourself first, Gabor.
1: Sure. My name is Gabor Mate. I'm a retired medical doctor in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, The author of four books, including In the Realm of Hunger Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, which is on the subject of addiction, work that I did in Vancouver's downtown Eastside for a dozen years with hardcore uh, substance-dependent individuals. And uh, right now I'm writing a new book, and I travel all over the world speaking and teaching.
0: Thank you. And uh, it's just a a great delight that we've got you on this podcast series. And I want to start with your book, first of all, In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost. Um, When I read that book, I was fascinated about your CD, Addiction, and I wanted to start with that place, your relationship to addiction.
1: Well, so usually when we speak of addiction, we are referring to substances, which is, of course in many ways, the most dramatic and the most debilitating form of addiction. But I don't define addiction in relationship to substances. Addiction, to me, is any behavior that a person indulges in that they find temporary pleasure or relief in, and therefore they crave it. Then they suffer negative consequences, and they continue despite those negative consequences. So that's when addiction is craving pleasure, relief, in the short term, negative impact, Failure to desist from it in the long term. Now, from by that definition, of course, addiction becomes a much broader phenomenon than simply substances. It can include sex and gambling, shopping, work, um, pornography, eating, uh, any range of human behaviors. And um, in my case, it showed up in two ways one was uh, work, and the other is uh, compulsive. shopping for compact discs, and people say, well, how can you compare yourself to your clients? And because the funny thing was, where I worked in Vancouver's downtown East side, this highly drug concentrated area, was only three blocks away from my classical record store. Mm-hmm. And so I literally, I would run from, during lunchtime, I would run over and, you know, and People people will say, well, how can you compare it? Well, you know, the, the differences are obvious. You don't get HIV from buying compact discs, But you lie and you cheat and you feel shame and you spend money that you shouldn't uh, in outrageous amounts, as I did sometimes. You um, pretend to your wife. You ignore your children. Uh, sometimes it would interfere with my work. So I had all the hallmarks of addiction, of course, from my perspective. There's only one universal addiction process, which shows up in different targets, but the brain circuits and the psychological dynamics and the origins are, are basically universal.
0: What function was this uh, CD addiction serving in your life? What function?
1: Well, l- l- let's just make it clear. It's not the CD addi- it's not. The, it wasn't addicted to the CDs. I was addicted to shopping for the CDs. Mm. I mean, I just love classical music, mm. but, I, but I could have stayed at home listening to the stuff I bought mm. instead of having to run back to the store over and over again to get more. So the, the addiction was to the acquisition, mm. the excitement of the hunt,
0: you know. Right.
1: And it made me feel very alive, very present, very focused. It really helped my ADD mm. uh, that way. And There was no ADD when I was shopping for compact disc in the sense of I was very present and fully aware. Mm. Um, My memory for what I bought when and where is very good, whereas my memory for some other things is not so good. So it made me feel really alive and focused and present and excited, vital. Uh, uh, That's what it did for me. Mm. It gave me also sense of meaning and purpose, Mm -hmm. temporarily, of course.
0: I mean, it is interesting that you're saying that it made you feel really alive and present because you worked downtown east side where there's so much trauma on the streets and wasn't that enough to make you feel alive and present
1: well um it's true i did feel alive and present at work very often and that's why work became an addiction for me as well Mm. but Mm. but you can have several addictions running at the same time Mm.
0: yeah and why would you say, why, what what was it that caused this addiction for you? What would you say were the fundamental things?
1: And by the way, let me just say that, beautiful as that downtown east side work was, it's, it is stressful work. Yeah. And, 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 and so the other addiction helped to soothe the impact of the work addiction, you know. Yeah. Now, in terms of what, well, you know, as to where it came from, I clearly needed soothing in my life and I needed, uh, because I couldn't provide it for myself. Mm. And so it, it, addiction is always a matter of self-soothing, which is not the same as self-regulation. Mm. Self-regulation would be that I can handle the stress and, and experience the stress and handle it and, and, and move through it. Self-soothing is that I have to numb myself to it somehow. Mm. And um, interestingly enough, in my parents' diary of my first very difficult two years of life. My father writes at some point, and I just read this very recently for the first time, that as fussy or as upset as I could be as a two-year-old, if they put the radio on with music on, that would soothe me. Oh, wow. Mm. And I hadn't really, I I hadn't known that. I hadn't Mm. known that until a few months ago when I read Mm. that Mm. diary. So there's obviously, no. We know music is very soothing for all mm. of us, you know. But mm. but especially for me, it sounds like it came along very early.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's that is fascinating, isn't it? How at a young age you, yeah, an adaptation was already being cultivated in you of listening to classical music. Yeah, and um, just what impact so has your childhood had had on you? Do you think because you come from Hungary or Jewish? What impact has your childhood had on you?
1: Well, uh, not only from Hungary and Jewish, but from Hungary at a time when Hungary was at war and occupied by the Nazis, mm-hmm. and as, uh, which is how I spent my first year under threat of my life. Uh, not that I knew that, but my mother knew it. So I was experiencing my mother's agony and fear and terror and grief at the death of her parents in Auschwitz, the absence of my father in a forced labor battalion, and so, and and you know, deprived of adequate nutrition. Um, it gave me a lifelong sense of not being, should I even be alive? You know, I have to justify my existence. Um, a lot of pain that had to be soothed. Um, the sense that it's all my fault because that's the, any child that goes through difficult circumstances makes it about themselves so that there's a deep sense of shame about the self itself, not shame about having done something wrong, but shame about actually being wrong in the first place. Um, That's on the negative side. I mean, on the positive side, uh, in my case, it also sensitized me to human suffering, uh, made me very interested to find out why people do what they do to themselves and to others um a strong sense of empathy um and the real commitment to make a difference and mm. uh, so, what was uh, all, all, all that all that but 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 you know that second positive side certainly could exist without the without with the negative impacts so you don't need yeah. to go through that kind of experiences to be empathetic and committed but in my case it it just happened to work that way
0: And what was your relationship to things like alcohol or or drugs? I mean, did that come before the um, shopping addiction, the need to shop?
1: I never was drawn to using substances. um, In the 60s, the late 60s, when I was going through university, of course, there's all all kinds of substances around, but I hadn't, I never developed a habit for any of them. I never had tried cocaine or or heroin, anything like that. And I think something in me was afraid to try it. Perhaps I'd like it too much, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I never went that way, and I was never interested in alcohol.
0: Mm -hmm. So some of our listeners would be really interested in hearing how did you break this relationship to to shopping? I mean, at some point, you spent thousands of dollars on compact discs. How did you manage to to break that habit?
1: tens of thousands over the years, and in one week, 8,000, just in one week. Wow. You know, which of course um, uh, demanded a terrific amount of subterfuge and lying to my wife, which my wife being very sensitive, wouldn't necessarily know that I was lying immediately, but she would sense that something was wrong. And again, what does that do to a relationship, you know? and tension in the family. Uh, How did I get over it? Well, um, it was as I was writing the book and you know, the the books I write, they're always for me as much as for me as for everybody else. And so in the process of writing this book, it actually was a way of working out my issues uh, around addiction, particularly on that one. The work addiction continued even after I finished writing that book.
0: Did you relapse?
1: In in terms of buying, yeah, no, I don't think since the writing the book I had, had much of an issue with it. Um, maybe once or twice, but I was for years I was quite capable of going into the store and just getting one or two CDs and then going home and not having to go back and not having to spend a lot, you know. So from that point of view, uh, I, I dealt with it um, within a very short period after writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there was no rel- no relapse in that, in that sense.
0: When I think of our listeners, many of our listeners will be chronic relapses, and I'm just wondering, yeah. from a professional perspective, how do we work with the relapse?
1: Well, um, so first of all, I had a lot of relapses before I wrote the book. Right. You know, so mm. yeah, you know, um, and then I made promises to myself, and I'd stay away from the store for a while, and then I couldn't. And by the way, I have to tell you. That store has been closed down owing to the competition of the online industry. And I really mourn it because it was a beautiful store. It was a beautiful, uh, warm, educated, uh, inviting place to hang out and speak with people and so on and it's another victim of modern capitalism at that mm-hmm. independent store which is north America's, in fact one of the world's best classical music stores shut down exactly a year ago now and i still mourn it not because i want to go and i mean I could, if i wanted to freak out and get get shot for compact days i could do it online with the push of a button i just missed the store you know sure um but in terms of how do we deal with relapse well it's the same question as how to deal with addiction. Uh, the um, compassionately, you know, like, like when I uh, um, speak with addicted people, I don't care what they're addicted to. I don't try and change their behavior. I ask them, "What is it doing for you?" And so. I mean, we can t- try this, I mean, you know, I know you've had you know, you've written publicly about your addiction issues, so uh, we don't have to talk about what you're addicted to. I mean, I, your listeners probably know, but, but if I just ask you this simple question, what did you get from it? What did you like about it? What did it do for you? What would you say?
0: Yeah, I got, I mean, it was love, and in a strange uh, way, love, excitement. I think what I got, what I got the biggest thing now, what I would say that I got from it was connection, that it okay. gave me connection.
1: Terrific, so love, excitement, and connection. Mm. Or let's put it in love, vitality, and connection. Are those good things or bad things in themselves?
0: Well, they're great things, they're positive things, yeah.
1: If, if yeah. Like, wouldn't you be there essential for life and for health? Yeah,
0: definitely. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. So then, then uh, w- what I'd be discussing with you is not why you're using drugs, but how you lost connection and love and, and, and how that's missing in your life. And, 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 and what are you doing in your life that keeps those things missing in your life? Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd discuss with you. If, 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 if you want to talk to me about your addiction and, and your relapse, I'd say, okay, so you relapsed, clearly you needed something. And by the way, if you look at the literature, literature on, on relapses or addictions in general, the biggest driver of relapse is stress. So um, so, so, then I would ask you, well, what was stressing you right now? And 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 what other ways can we find of, well, I, I would unpack your stresses with you and and then talk about how do we uh, help you live a life where you deal with that stress in a more creative way. So it wouldn't be a question of either judging or trying to change things. It could be, well, What's it doing for you, and, and, and how can we help you with those issues? You know, no, if if the drug relapses and if you need detox, well, that's fine. But, but, but that's just a temporary measure. The, the real mm. thing is to address the issues that are driving the addiction and the relapse in the first place, mm. which is, of course, where trauma comes in.
0: Yeah, let's before we actually, um, well, um, kind of hone in on trauma. Just really wanted to um, come back to this, this um, working with relapse because we know that there are many recovery programs out there, but yet the success rate is so, you know, maybe thirty percent. Why is
1: it? Why is it? So high? Is it as high as thirty percent?
0: Maybe even lower, but we know that it definitely doesn't go over the fifty percent. But very, you know, and that includes things like twelve-step programs, Buddhist recovery I programs.
1: My, my sense is that the percentages are much lower. I don't, I don't have them in front of me, but that's my sense. Well, <clears> there's <throat> a good reason they don't work. They don't address the underlying issues, and uh, and even the twelve-step. I mean, you know, I I always have to be careful when I say this because I love the twelve steps. I mean, I think they're great not just for addictions, but for life, mm-hmm. you know, who who doesn't want to be in touch with their higher power, you know, their conscience or their truth or their essence or nature or their God or whatever they want to define it as, you know, uh, who doesn't want to be um, um, responsible in their interactions with other people. You know, so the 12 steps are, you know, who doesn't want to support other people's compa- other people compassionately, but non-intrusively, you know? I mean, those are all uh, essential human qualities. Having said that, the 12 steps, you can go through them for three decades and never talk about what's really driving the addiction. Sure. Because the because the ideology for the most part is that you've got this disease, this brain disease that you inherited. And, you know, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. No, you're not an alcoholic. You're a person who escapes into alcohol because you got so much pain you don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. That's who you actually are, mm-hmm. you know. So define oneself to define oneself by one's dysfunction, not not something positive about it. You know, you acknowledge it. You declare it publicly. You're not ashamed of it. That's great, but don't define yourself in your own mind with that because you're not that. That's not who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you are. Um, much beyond, broader than that. And so, but anyway, my, my basic quibble with the 12-step programs, as with most treatment programs, is they never talk about trauma in any meaningful way. Which is to say, they don't address the underlying cause of addictions, which is 100% and always rooted in trauma. And uh, let me just say quickly, is that every once in a while, I run into somebody who says, well, I had an addiction, but I had a beautifully happy childhood. And you've seen me do this with are. It takes me three minutes mm-hmm. to unpack that beautiful, happy childhood and show the actual pain that that person had suppressed. And um, if anybody doesn't believe me, I did a podcast recently with Last Day, uh, Lamonada. Uh, it's a podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's actually on the opiate crisis. Okay. They've been doing it. They've been doing it for about a year now. Mm-hmm. La Monada, Last Day. Check out my. Uh, Podcast with them on February the 27th, I think. Sorry, January the 27th. And I do that with the host who's Mm. telling me what a beautiful childhood she had. Her brother overdosed on opiates. He died. Mm. And she couldn't understand it because they had this beautiful childhood. Mm. And then within, you know, five minutes, she actually got it. You know, Mm. so to go back to my theme here, all addictions are rooted in trauma. And if you don't deal with the trauma, you're not dealing with the cause. You're not dealing with the fundamental core of what's driving your
0: addiction. Mm. So what is trauma?
1: <clears throat> well, the, the word itself it explains itself. It comes from the Greek word for wounding, for wound. So it's a wound. Mm. But it's a wound that hasn't healed. And so if you had a wound on your flesh that hasn't healed, you'd have to defend against it. You'd be developing all these adaptations. You'd be covering up with thick material, so nothing could touch it. Uh, you'd be you'd be protecting yourself all the time, which is mean which means a restriction, a constriction of your life. So trauma really is a constriction that developed around an unhealed wound, an unhealed psychological wound. And so trauma is not what happened to you. So people talk about trauma as say sexual abuse. Well, sexual abuse is traumatic, but it's not the trauma. <clears throat> the trauma is the what happens inside a person as a result of those events. And uh, we know beyond any shadow of doubt that the more traumatic incidents a person had um, sustained as a child, the greater risk for addiction, exponentially so. Mm. So, you know, you may have talked already about the adverse childhood experiences studies, the ACE studies which show that for each, sexual, physical, uh, emotional abuse, for a parent dying, a parent being jailed, violence in the family, a parent being addicted, mentally ill, a divorce, neglect. For every one of these um, experiences, the risk of addiction goes up exponentially, to which I would only add that in this society, you also have to add poverty and uh, racial oppression as those adverse experiences, And more broadly speaking, you also have to add in the trauma of what happens, not when terrible things occur to you, but when the good things that should happen don't happen. So if the the parents may not have abused you, but what if they were workaholics? Therefore, you got the sense that you didn't matter so much. Or what if the parents were so stressed that they couldn't give you the kind of attuned attention that you needed? So you get to develop a sense of having to look for attention from the outside or the pain of not being seen. So trauma comes in many forms. I should say the traumatic um, incitements come in many forms in this society, but hardly anybody escapes them.
0: So if we work with addic- to work with addictions, okay. we have to work with the trauma How do we work with the trauma? How do we enable people to begin to release the trauma?
1: Well, the the fundamental assumption is is that um, everybody's got a healing, healthy part to them. Mm. So that you don't just see people as their dysfunctions, as their addictions. That's another reason why I both appreciate, but also object to the terminology of I am an alcoholic. No, you're yeah, much more than that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and 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 there's that healthy part of us. So first of all, we have to recognize that. Mm. So the question is, not just how do we release the trauma, but how do, how do we empower and invite that healthy part? Now, incidentally, the language of recovery recognizes that, impl- impl- recognizes that implicitly, because, um, what is recovery? Mm. I mean, to, recover something. to mm. find something, what is it that people find? And they find themselves, which means that self was never destroyed in the first place. So so, so the real issue is how do we help people recover their true selves? Mm. You know, no, that's the first point. Uh, well, the second point is how to give people the sense of safety that they can actually um look at themselves honestly well that that's in the relationship so in that sense the 12-step programs where they can deliver that safety and they don't always i've never talked to a lot of people who don't feel very safe in their 12-step groups they 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 feel they're being judged or demeaned and so on but a supportive 12-step group for example provides community and connection and and support where you feel safe to actually look at yourself or a therapeutic relationship with a with a counselor or, or a person in your life. So you need the safety, because when you're safety, uh, when you're safe, then you can look at the truth. So that's the second point. And then, so first is um, recognizing that there's the healthy part. Secondly, providing the safety. And then thirdly, then actually looking at those Traumatic adaptations, not as things to get rid of, but to recognize what role they've played in your life. So that so that I'm not looking at my addiction as an enemy, but as kind of a well-intentioned but misguided friend. And by the way, I've talked to a lot of people who've said that the addiction saved their lives. Mm -hmm. That, 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 That without it, they would have committed suicide or they would have done something desperate, you know, so it really comes along as a friend, but a misguided one. Mm. It guides you in the right direction, and a misguiding one. It guides you in the wrong direction. But rather than seeing it as an enemy to battle, mm. make friends with it. Find out why it came along, and what's the pain underneath it.
0: No. Can we unpack this adaptation a bit? You talk about addiction being adaptation, and you've what are adaptations?
1: Well, adaptations is... Um, a behavior and a mindset that you take on to deal with the situation that would otherwise overwhelm you. So for example, if you're being sexually abused, one strategy, which is not conscious, the the brain just does it automatically, is to shut down emotionally so that you don't feel the the horror of it. Mm. Well, the price of that is you lose connection with your body. Mm. Now when you do, life becomes very stale. Well, then you do crystal meth. Mm. Now you feel alive, (coughs) or cocaine. Mm. So both the shutdown and then the drug that you're doing or the behavior you're engaging in are adaptations to some pain that you had no other way to handle in the first place. Mm.
0: And do you consider things like depression, ADHD, as forms of adaptations?
1: Well, not by the time they're full-blown, but in their origins, they are. And that's what I'm saying. Um, So ADHD, the tuning out, the absent-mindedness, which you is certainly one of my traits, of course it's an adaptation. When does a person tune out? It's when they're stressed and they don't know what to do. I was an infant. I was stressed, and I didn't know what to do. I couldn't have escaped. So tuning up becomes like a natural response to an overbearing stress. Depression means pushing down. Well, what do we push down in depression? We push down our feelings. Why do we push them down? Because they're too painful. It all begins as adaptation. And later on, it has an opposite effect. But that's because what is meant to be adaptive in one circumstance may be harmful in another circumstance. So while it's good to tune out if you're a six month old and you're living in dire circumstances or just in very stressful circumstances, it's not so good to tune out when you're six years old and sitting in the classroom. Hmm. But you didn't do it consciously, so you can't just stop it. Then they, then they give you this label that you got this disease. You don't have a disease, you have an adaptation. Addiction is not a disease, it behaves like one, but it's an adaptation. Disease model, uh, it covers a narrow physiological spectrum of what happens specifically in drug addiction. Because yeah, you do a drug and then you become dependent on it and that changes the brain. So you can talk about disease in that sense, but it doesn't talk about it in its full origins or its full dimensions. So we have to be careful about applying the disease model to addiction or to any so-called mental illness.
0: Thank you for making that that really clear. So many of our listeners may be struggling right now and listening and thinking, well, What's the best way to creatively work with my addictions? Because there's things like somatic experiencing out there, family constellation, your own program, compassionate inquiry. Uh, well, no,
1: yeah. compassionate inquiry is not designed as an addiction treatment. It's, it's a training for counselors and therapists. Uh, although the, the, the short version of it, people would get a lot of trauma healing for, by doing it but it's not designed as an addiction treatment as such.
0: Thank you for making that clear. So just coming back to that question, there is so much out there, as I say, there's trauma-informed therapy, somatic experiencing, family constellation, you know, neurofeedback. What would you say, plant medicine, what would you say is is the creative way to work with addiction, somebody who's struggling with addiction?
1: Yeah, oh, by the way, um, well, so it depends on what, there's two separate issues here. One is the substance use, and then there's the trauma that underlies the addiction, or or the addiction itself, whether it's gambling or pornography or whatever it is, and the trauma that underlies it. So if you ask me what to do about the addiction itself, um, uh, I I can't give you one uh, overall or overarching answer to that. I certainly would recommend people try 12-step groups for whatever kind of addiction they have. You know, see if it's see if it's appropriate for you. See if you feel good there. See if you get the support. Um, uh, if you have an active physical addiction, you have to deal with that. So if you're a heroin addict, for God's sakes, go on Suboxone if that's what you need to do. If you can't be withdrawn, can't be detoxed from the from the heroin well then suboxone although it's another addictive drug but at least it's a manageable one that'll allow you to live a life so consider that or methadone you know suboxone in most ways is better than methadone but you know um and 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 when you stabilize yourself by means say of suboxone or methadone if, if you need to go that route i mean if you can detox without it terrific but if you can't If you can stabilize stabilize yourself, then start doing the trauma work, including compassion inquiry and everything else that you mentioned. Uh, Join a 12 step group. Uh, If you're addicted to opiates, you might want to, where it's available to you, which it's not in most places in the United States, it is legal in Canada, not in the US. Um, Iboga or Ibogaine, uh, where it's provided by good trained, responsible people can be a fantastic way to get off opiates without having to go on suboxone, without having to go on methadone. So I've known many cases where it's been miraculous that way. Um, Mindfulness practices that I don't have to talk much about to a Buddhist community, but the mindfulness practices do Allow you to observe the mind without being caught up in its messages. And they do promote self-compassion, which is essential in the healing of addiction. Mm. Um, And then any of the programs you mentioned, Vimels, and I don't think there's one size fits all. Mm. But but some work that recognizes trauma and addresses it is essential. Mm. Uh, so, whichever form that takes, the the, the body, the, the bodily forms, like somatic experiencing, uh, sensory motor process processing, I think they call it, any number of methods like that, EMDR, <coughs> um, mm, yeah. good psychotherapy, trauma informed psychotherapy. Um, we know that for PTSD, which a lot of addicts suffer from. MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is now being um, studied in a major way in several centers in Canada, the U.S., and internationally. That's a very promising modality. Um, a lot of people have found benefit by where it's legal um, to work with substances like ayahuasca, not to detox because it doesn't detox you, but to deal with. But look at it: once you detoxed to look at the trauma and to get in touch with your deep self. People have found that very helpful. Uh, talking with people honestly about yourself who can hear you and validate you, making that connection with people, all these things. And I wish I could say there was one program, here it is, it works. There's no, there's no one-size-fits-all. And some people just need harm reduction, which may mean continue to use but in a less harmful way which
0: sure.
1: means supervised injection sites mm. uh, sterile needles mm. whatever you know
0: um,
1: i wanted to ask cute. you go ahead sorry
0: carry on what was that what no, were you no, going it to say?
1: yeah no
0: it's okay i i wanted to ask you just a, a bit more about uh, plant medicine because you know it, it's something that you are familiar with, and I know my listeners will want to know a bit more about that. And what I want to ask you is, is it is it possible to get addicted to plant medicines like ayahuasca or, or iboga?
1: Well, no, it's not. Um, again, what is the definition of addiction? Something that you crave, find pleasure in, um, and, uh, and relief in. And there's negative consequences and you can't mm. give it up. Mm. Trust me, there's no pleasure in ayahuasca. Mm. You drink it and then you and you feel nauseated, mm. you know, very often. Not always, but very often. It brings mm. up all kinds of emotional pain and, and everything you never wanted to deal with. It can also bring up beautiful images of connection and contact and belonging and, and, and the true self. Mm. But you never know what's gonna happen. Okay, number one. Uh, So, number one. Number two, the the main issue in using these substances is not the substances, but who's working with you. Like for example, with the experience I had last summer in the Peruvian jungle with ayahuasca, it was the shaman working with me that really made the difference, not the substance so much by itself. In fact, traditionally, only the shamans would drink the ayahuasca and not the participants. Mm. So it was never about the substance. It's also about the process that the, the substance helps to to open you to. Secondly, addictive substances you use regularly. Ayahuasca, you don't, know, nobody uses ayahuasca regularly. I mean, some people go to ceremonies frequently, once a month, but you're not using And thirdly, the substances that are addictive, like, like, like um, or that can be addictive, or say alcohol or marijuana or, or opiates, you're usually using them to numb yourself, to get away from reality. The plant medicines in the proper context, they don't get you away from reality. They get you much closer to your reality than you ever want it to be sometimes. And sometimes it's very difficult people to endure those experiences. So there's just nothing addictive. And, and your brain does not develop independence, finally. So there's just, this is, they're not addictive. Now I tell you, there's only one sense in which there's a vague threat of addiction is if you have these deep experiences on, say, ayahuasca, but you don't integrate the message into your life, you don't make the d- changes, and then you just want to feel alive and great and and, and 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 empowered, and then you keep going to ceremonies. But even then, it's like it's not like it's, you can't possibly do it daily. You just, it's just not like that. So I don't know. Any, I've never met anybody who's addicted to ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen people use it improperly, inappropriately, with the wrong people. And it's got its risks. There's no question about it. But addiction isn't one of them. And, as, and, and, and there's one more issue I wanna address, especially with 12-steppers uh, who sometimes say, well, you just got off a substance and now you're telling me to use another substance. Well, first of all, I'm not telling anybody to do anything. I'm just saying, here's a an, possibility for you, for you to consider. But secondly, it's all about set and setting. Why did you use that substance? Well, you used it to numb yourself. What context did you use it in? You know, well, by myself in my room or with my buddies. Here you're using it in ceremony with shamans or or, or trained healers. And you're doing it not to get away from yourself, but to actually find yourself. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different thing. So, no, having said that, if somebody is so suspicious of substances because of their own experience with their own substance history that they just don't want to go that route, well, for God's sake, it's not for everybody. It's not a problem. There's lots of other things.
0: You talk about the uh, the need for the therapist to become redundant. Would you say that's the same for a ceremony of the, the need at some point for ceremony to become redundant too?
1: well if the ceremony's intention is to help you with your addiction which a lot of people have found benefit in i mean i know lots of people off their addictions because they participated in ceremony and if that was your only goal and once you're no longer addicted you don't have to keep going to ceremony. For some people, ceremony becomes a spiritual way of life, just like um, Buddhist meditation does. You, you can think of ceremony as a meditation, actually. Sure. Which, which is actually what the in- instruction is. Mm-hmm. is to be aware of the body, just to be curious, to notice what's happening, not to get attached to anything that happens. I and mean, you get the same instructions in ceremony as you do in a meditation course. If that's a spiritual life for you, if you keep growing that way, and keep enhancing your life, that by all means. I mean, that's how they use it in the Amazon you know? So it's not, I can't give you a prescription for it. Um, But no, it does not have to be a lifelong thing and it doesn't have to be a long-term thing either. either.
0: Thank you. I'm just aware of time. And I just really want the listeners to be really aware of your body of work because for me, all your books really go back to that point of trauma with when the body says no scattered minds, Hold on to your children in the realm of the hungry ghosts. I, I think it's all—all all of those books are pointing to trauma.
1: Yeah. Well, they all have to—they all have to do with human development. Hold on to your kids is not so much about trauma, but it's about how to not to traumatize kids, yeah. uh, and, and 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 how to protect them from a not from a traumatizing culture, in which the trauma very often happens at the hands of peers. So the full title of the book is Hold On To Your Kids, um, Why Parents Are More Important Than Peers. Because so, so many of our kids just get caught up in the digitalized, very addicted, very hyper peer culture, and then they're lost. So that's what that book is about. But the other three books, <clears throat> my book on ADHD, the Canadian title which is Scattered Minds, that's the British title as well. The, American, the U.S. title is Scattered. Uh, my book on the stress and health, When the Body Says No, and in the realm of hunger goes close encounters with addiction, they all have to do with trauma. And, 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 and what I'm saying is that ADHD is all mental illness, as I was saying before, originates in some significant childhood traumatic experiences. Most chronic illnesses like cancer, um, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, multi- um, ALS, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, chronic eczema, chronic asthma, they have significant roots in childhood trauma, which actually affects the physiology of human beings and then the stresses and the adaptations that then we take on further interfere with the immune system and the nervous system and the hormonal apparatus. For example, there was a study recently, only a couple of months ago, that women who were sexually abused, no, sorry, Let me correct myself. Women with PTSD have doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. Mm. For me, which struck me as no surprise whatsoever. I've been writing about that for a while. Uh, But it shows the impact of the the connection between emotions and their physiology, Mm. which is simply a scientific connection that medical practice ignores. I mean, most of the time you go see a physician with a medical problem, uh, let's say asthma or, or or Multiple sclerosis. They're never going to ask you about your childhood or your trauma or your stress. They're just not going to ask you that. But they have everything to do with why you got those conditions. So that's, yeah. what, that's what I that's what I write and talk about. Mm, yeah, and it's, yeah, and it's also what I'm addressing yeah. in my next book, I "Get It Done." And I'm finding it quite a struggle. But the title is um "The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture."
0: Mm, mm. Well, I, I just saying that as a kid growing up, I just assumed it was only black kids who had asthma and eczema. And, you know, now when I look back and I think, oh, these black kids who are in this orphanage, completely white environment. Yeah, it's not surprising. And, of course, everybody gets asthma and eczema. But just rounding up because… Um, well, just, sorry,
1: to inter- so, sorry to interrupt, though. Yeah. Let me point out to you that… There's a study just a couple of years ago that showed that the more episodes of racism a Black American woman experiences, the greater her risk for asthma. Oh,
0: wow! So, it was, I mean, well, yeah.
1: so what you're saying is actually true.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's,
1: it's not exclusive, but it's true.
0: Sure, sure, yeah. So, just this, uh, just a couple more questions. We we hear about this opiate crisis. There's this opiate crisis, but from where I'm sitting, like as a kid, it was EVO stick crisis. And then it's like it was a heroin crisis. Are we really in a crisis? Or is, are these addictive behaviors just part of a human life, part of the human condition?
1: Well, um, for, first of all, um, I mean, it is a crisis in a sense that it's hurting a lot of people, and it, and it came on rather dramatically. But... It didn't become a crisis until it started killing white people. Uh, like like uh, we've had high rates of, uh, of, of of overdose deaths and alcoholic deaths in, say, Canada's First Nations communities. Sure. Nobody ever talked about a crisis. Or, or in the native uh, communities of, of the United States, nobody ever talked about a crisis. So partly the crisis depends on whose oxy is being gored, you know? But having said that, it's real, and it's not a question of human life. It's just a question of human life under certain conditions. For example, a study in the Journal of American Association a few weeks ago that in areas where there have been shut down of automobile plants, there is 85 percent greater risk of opio- opioid deaths. So we're talking about life in late stage capitalism, which makes people renders them redundant, takes away meaning, destroys communities makes people isolated. Um, So it's not an inevitable outcome of human life, but it's an outcome of human life under certain conditions that less and less meets human needs and more and more stresses human beings. And that's moving across class and racial lines now um, in a way that it didn't before. So it's more noticeable to the average person and to the media and to politicians and so on. so that's what creates the crisis terminology, but it's really enough. I mean, more people in the United States, as many people die every three weeks of overdoses as died in 9-11. Mm. Well, that's a crisis. Mm. And, by the way, if you look at all the attention uh, and public handling and concern being devoted to this coronavirus right now, there's no comparison about the damage being done by addiction and overdoses and disease and so on. Where's the where's the comparative attention and uh, and 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 intention? I mean, uh, and and media dis- discussion.
0: Don't even get me started on that. I just keep on thinking <laughs> when it was Ebola in Africa. I don't remember these countries. Repatriating the Africans back to America or England or whatever, and chartering <laughs> planes to take them out. Yeah, yeah but that's yeah. A, a, another story. So, <laughs> um, I just it's uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, and I just wonder if there's anything else that you would like to to say to to the to our audience.
1: Well, uh, there's something I would say to a Buddhist audience. So I read a book a few years ago by a Buddhist psychiatrist called Mark Epstein. Oh and, uh, and a book about, yeah. Thought without called thoughts, thoughts Without a Thinker, but that's not the book I'm referring to. I'm referring to a more recent book, The Trauma of Everyday Life. Oh yeah. And he pointed out, and it's something I hadn't thought about before, so it really struck me that the Buddha himself was a traumatized person. Mm. His mother died when he was a week old. Yes. Now in the Buddhist um, mythology, that's presented as kind of a divine accession you know, to heaven and his aunt took over and the baby is not presented as suffering. But look at a real human being whose mother dies, at, which the Buddha was, whose mother dies when he's a week old. Mm. That kid is traumatized. Mm. And mm. so the story of the Buddha going out there and seeing suffering, he, that, that they've always protected him from suffering. Mm. And they, but then he goes out, he sees somebody's dying or somebody's sick and, you know, somebody old. And he discovers suffering. No, he discovered suffering when he was a week old. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and then that mindful holding that he creates for himself, the meditation. That's what the mother needs to do for the child. So Marx Epstein makes that beautiful case, Mm. and I think people in the Buddhist community might want to consider that the the very source of their wisdom arises from a very early primal trauma. Mm.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, it's a perfect note to end this podcast on. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.